Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to remember something. I'm going to ask you to remember a time in your life where you were blindsided by a negative report. Do you remember that? Maybe your boss called you in, you thought everything was fine, and wham, you got negative news. Maybe you were going to have a conversation with your spouse or your best friend, and you thought everything was just fine, and then boom, you realize negative news. I have no way of proving this, but I think that the church at Laodicea felt that way. Why? Because they were self-sufficient. They thought they had all their ducks in a row. They thought everything was just fine by all indications. And then, boom, here comes a letter. This letter, the last of the seven churches, has got not a shred of positive comments in it. Not a single compliment. It's nothing but negative. I have a feeling they were blindsided. This particular place, Laodicea, was a very wealthy city, perhaps more wealthy than any other. As a matter of fact, they were known as kind of the banking center for the Eastern Roman Empire, sort of like the Zurich, Switzerland of international banking. There's an account of Cicero where he writes that he had cashed in some banknotes in that town. It was an interesting place. It was also a place that was known for luxurious clothing. And the primary reason is because the Fertile Valley allowed them to raise an enormous amount of sheep. And they had maybe not genetically engineered, but somehow figured out how to raise black sheep in mass numbers. So ordinary wool from a sheep would have to be dyed to turn to another color. The black wool 
of the sheep from Laodicea never had to be touched. It was silky black. It was coveted all over the Roman world. It made them a garment industry. It made them a place that could export this famous and much-desired wool. In addition to that, they were a medical center. Think of Johns Hopkins University, right? Or the Mayo Clinic. Or some place that's known for their medical expertise. That's what Laodicea was. One of the things they were especially known for was ophthalmology. They had an eye center there that was out of this world. It was known all over the Roman world, and people would come from far and wide to be treated in that place. And that medical center was attached to, if not in, the temple at Laodicea. They also had some famous hot springs. Hot springs were coveted, especially those, because they apparently had healing properties in the water. Their water was warm. People would soak in it. The minerals apparently helped maybe rheumatoid arthritis or any number of other things. They were famous for that as well. In other words, people flocked to the city because it was well-known and it was prosperous. With all that, the angel to the church at Laodicea has nothing good to say. Let's consider his rebukes to the church. Rebuke number one. You're lukewarm. Interesting. Every one of these rebukes, by the way, has a parallel to something in their life. You're lukewarm. You are so lukewarm that you are nasty in my mouth and I'm going to spew you out. I wish you were either hot or cold, not lukewarm. That in itself is kind of an interesting, kind of a curious phrase, isn't it? Why, why would it be better to be absolutely cold than lukewarm? I'm talking about spiritually now. Well, it's quite possible that in other words, the angel is saying to the church, in effect this, believing in God and being indifferent about it is worse than unbelief. I'd rather be an unbeliever than be you. Because an unbeliever is at least honest about something. He doesn't believe in God. I wonder if that's why, just a curiosity, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. Well, he wanted to draw them in. But perhaps he even appreciated their honesty. They didn't try to put on airs of any sort. The parallel, of course, is the hot springs of Laodicea. Outside the town, it was the major water source, but once it got into the town, it was lukewarm. And of course, the minerals in the water, primarily sulfur, made it stink, and nobody would ingest it. If they put it in their mouth, they would spew it out. The angel says, that's what you're like to me. Second indictment, second rebuke. You're poor. Poor? The city of Laodicea? Here's an interesting historical fact. 
Laodicea was so self-sufficient, so wealthy, that in 60 AD, there was a dramatic, gigantic earthquake in the region that virtually destroyed their city. And the emperor of Rome sent a message that he would send supplies and he would send money to help them rebuild their town. And you know what the response was? Thanks, but no thanks. We're good on our own. We got enough money, enough manpower to rebuild our own city. Thank you very much. We are absolutely wealthy and self-sufficient. It is to this city that Jesus says, you are poor. You live in an incredibly wealthy city. You have everything you need. You're absolutely self-sufficient. You're living in the banking capital of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. But you're spiritually impoverished. You're trading on Wall Street and you're living in a spiritual gutter. That's the second indictment. You know what the remedy for that indictment is? Jesus says, buy gold for me. Buy gold for me and you'll be rich. You know what gold is? It's a metal that's refined in intense heat. Jesus is in effect saying, step into the life of discipleship and go through what sometimes seems like a virtual hell to burn out the dross that's within you. And then you'll be refined like gold, and then you will be rich, spiritually rich. Third indictment to this church is you're naked. That, again, is ironic, isn't it? Because they were known as something of a garment center, rare garments of black wool. You're naked. You're just walking around without any clothes on. I couldn't help but think about that proverbial story, the emperor's new clothes. Remember that one? They were the emperor. They thought they were fully clothed, and they were naked. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, if you repent and follow me, I will give you a white robe to cover your nakedness. And it's better than anything you can get on your Madison Avenue. So repent and follow me. The fourth indictment, perhaps one of the most ironic of all, is you're blind. You're in the center of a medical community that heals those who have physical infirmities of the eye, and you're blind. You can't see anything. Put some spiritual salve on your eyes. I'll give it to you, and then you can see. That's a quick overview of the message to the church at Laodicea. We have now come to the very end of the seven churches, and we're only at the end of chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. 
And I've committed to preach about the whole book of Revelation for the rest of the semester. So you can see we got a little ways to go. In order to do this, I want to remind you of something or maybe tell you something that you haven't thought of. It seems to me that the first seven churches, the messages to those churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are kind of like the prelude, the introduction to what is to come. In what way? It's an introduction concerning what will appear and happen down the road. And before we move to that section of the book of Revelation, I want to acknowledge something for you um, that I believe is going to be true. First, when we move into this last section of the book of Revelation, it will be controversial. Why? Because few books in the Bible create more interpretive lines in the sand than the book of Revelation does. Second, it's going to be disappointing to many, this next section. For more than 20 years uh, that I've been here, I have heard over and over again, you really ought to preach a series on the book of Revelation. You need to do this. And those folks were right, I did. But there was something that was always embedded in what they said that I picked up on when something like this. You need to do this because I'm sure you agree with me about the book of Revelation and everybody needs to hear it. Use whatever eloquence you have as a preacher to proclaim what I think the book of Revelation means, right? That was behind it. And that's why many of you are going to be disappointed. Because I'm not going to agree with everything you think. As a matter of fact, I'm going to, like a really bad poker player, reveal my hand. And the way I'm going to reveal my hand is to glance back at what I said, which I'm sure you have long forgotten, in the very first sermon. Here's what I said about entering the book of Revelation. I said that we need to avoid some interpretive mistakes. The first interpretive mistake I think we need to avoid is taking this book literally. That is a devastating first start. Why? Because apocalyptic literature was never meant to be taken literally. It doesn't mean there's not history in it. But if we take it literally, we've eclipsed the biblical narrative. Embedded within this figurative language are messages from God. But we have to embrace the figurative nature of apocalyptic literature in order to understand it. Second critical interpretive mistake that we don't want to make is what I called crunching numbers. There's some very, very interesting, very, very famous numbers in the book of Revelation, like 7 and 12 and 666. And all of them are figurative. 
they all are symbolic of something else. And you need to dig to understand and to find out. Using those numbers or any other numbers to calculate some sort of timeline for the end is, in my opinion, just not a proper approach. History is absolutely littered with these kinds of errors. The third thing we ought to avoid as an interpretive error is the calling out of names and events. That is to say, those gigantic banners or charts on the book of Revelation and when everything was going to occur are not helpful. They're just not. Because they are routinely revised because of inaccuracies all the time. That's not a proper approach to the book of Revelation. Nor is trying to identify the latest designation for the Antichrist a proper approach. Every single despot in the history of the Christian church has been named the Antichrist. And every single one of them has not been. That should lead us to be a little bit humble about our interpretation. And it might even suggest that we need to reinterpret what the Antichrist is. The final thing we need to avoid, uh, because I think it's an interpretive mistake, is we need to avoid the choosing of a template. So let me be just straight up. If you choose a hermeneutical template and you run the book of Revelation through the template, what comes out the other side is what you thought all along. Drop your pre and your post and your mid and start from square one and listen to the words of the book of Revelation. Then come to your conclusions. It's not easy to do. Because there's all kinds of voices chirping in our ears concerning what the book actually means. So let's step back and just listen to the words, shall we? And I think it'll do us a lot of good. So finally, I want to address the conclusion of this letter to the church at Laodicea. First, I want to say this. As with all Scripture, even when, and it always is true, an author addresses a particular particular audience, that particular audience is not the only receiver of the message. When the audience Laodicea is addressed, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit is addressing every church in every generation, not just Laodicea. This is at the heart of our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. 
that when the authors wrote concerning a particular time in history, they were writing about that. But by the Spirit of God, their words are inspired for us today. So when we look at the book of Revelation, like Laodicea, it's for us today. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle John, let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Not just back then, but now. I'm going to have to pause to say something. If I didn't believe that that was the essence of the Scripture, that it was inspired by God for all time, I would quit my job tomorrow. I am not going to stand up here Sunday after Sunday and pontificate about what I think, although I know I'm not so naive that my ideas and my thoughts come out. It is the Word of God, and it's for today. So, now let me say the hard thing. In my opinion, the indictment against the church at Laodicea is not simply directed to them. It's applicable right now to the American church. We are self-sufficient. We are wealthy. We are well-clothed. And we're naked. And we're poor. And we're destitute. I've told this story before, but I have to tell it again. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to do a pastor seminar in northern Ghana for a group of about 35 pastors who had never conceived of the possibility of college education they were pastoring churches in rural impoverished areas and they came for this seminar and on one occasion one of the pastors spoke up at a Q&A time and best I can remember it he said this Pastor Bob God must especially love America. And the American churches because they've been so blessed. It nearly broke my heart. And I think my reaction was more like a shout. No, no, no. 
You don't understand. I knew where they'd come from. I knew that many of them had journeyed on foot for a full day to be there. I knew about the conditions under which they ministered. And they were telling me to pray for them. I wish that at the time I had had a quicker tongue than I had because I didn't quite know what to say. I, I, my tongue was tied by shame. But if I had it to do all over again, if I was there again, I know what I would have done. I would have pulled out my Bible and turned to Revelation chapter 3. verses 14 through 22. And I would have read those verses. And I would have said, you know, you think this was to the church of Laodicea. And it was. But it's also to us in America. Because we are so self-sufficient they were not God-reliant. What's worse than our self-sufficiency is that we actually think we deserve the blessings. Many of our churches in the United States of America preach a prosperity gospel that is an absolute heresy. And if Jesus were here, he would say, I want to spew you out of my mouth. You know what I saw also know? Is that disgusting heresy is all over Africa. And that's why those pastors asked the question. They thought in some sort of good luck way, they could achieve the blessing from God if they were just better Christians. And that their poverty may go away. In the churches of America, we actually believe that suffering is bad and a good God would not allow it to happen. And that is utter nonsense. In the churches of America today, we are more focused on the body than we are on the soul. And the churches of today, our love of things is despicable. And our attachment to toys is childless. And our civic religion is an abomination to God. We are self-reliant. We think we're rich and we're desperately poor. We believe we have all the wisdom in the world and we refuse because we're so self-sufficient to really 
be led by the Spirit. Honestly, I wanted to wash those pastors' feet and have them pray for me because I live where you do. Here's the main point, my friends, of prophetic literature in the first seven churches and beyond in the book of Revelation. The main point of prophetic literature is not a timeline concerning the coming judgment of God. The main point of prophetic literature is proclamation to the church concerning its current reality and how to respond. That is the essence, the bedrock of prophecy. The other is secondary. It's as though John ends the seven churches with Laodicea and in effect says, you want to know what's going to happen in the future? You want to understand how God's in control? Do you want to understand the nature of God? That first you have to take an internal look at your own soul. And then maybe after you repent, then maybe you'll be able to see and you'll be able to follow. So how should we approach the book of Revelation? With repentance, with humility, and not by wagging a righteous finger under the noses of the unrighteous, and not clamoring for the impending judgment of God. But serving the world the way Jesus did. The suffering servant. Taking an internal look and praying that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I... uh, I want to end this sermon with a confession. First, a personal one. I am lukewarm. compared to what I ought to be. I'm not rich. I'm desperately poor. I'm not finely clothed. I'm naked. I can't see straight because I'm blind. Lord, I also want to end this sermon with a corporate confession. I believe that the people who are listening to me are in the same situation. How could we not be? 
because everything about our world tells us we're rich and self-sufficient. And we're not. So, Lord, break us down. Put us at the place where we're on our knees. Begging for your mercy. And asking you to fill us with your love for the world. And then help us to uh, look through those eyes at the book of Revelation and ask the question, what is the Spirit saying to the church? And then to listen and to follow. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.